Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 99, Michael of Amorium. Last time, I discussed the early imperial career of Leo V. The Armenian was elevated by his troops after the army had suffered two disastrous defeats at the hands of the Bulgars. The new emperor realised that significant change was necessary, if he was going to stay emperor and pass the throne peacefully to his son. The previous regime had been thoroughly discredited, and the popular consensus was that God was angry about something, whether it was their collective sins or the individual blasphemy of their rulers. With life expectancy much shorter than it is today, we should remember that most of the older people in Constantinople had grown up around the time that Constantine V was emperor. He had ruled for 34 years, an epic reign by the standards of the day, and I think his reputation as a great military leader was enhanced by the fact that Irene then ruled for 20 years after his death. Her femininity, and therefore inability to lead the armies, emphasised what a great man he was to those who valued the traditional view of the emperor as a valiant imperator. Add to all this that Leo III, Constantine's father, had ruled for 24 years before his son. So from Leo the Armenian's perspective, there was this very successful imperial dynasty that was all anyone had a living memory of. They had ruled well, Irene had made a few mistakes, but the rot had clearly set in when Nicephorus stepped up to replace her. The obvious way for Leo to establish his legitimacy was to connect himself to the Isaurians. Last week he renamed his son Constantine. This week he restores iconoclasm and defeats the Bulgars. By following this blueprint, Leo hoped that he too would leave power to his children and create a successful dynasty. But that's not how this story will end. As you'll recall, the emperor had a showdown on Christmas Day 815 with his senior clergy. Led by the patriarch Nicephorus and Theodore of the Studious Monastery, these staunch iconophiles refused to compromise with the emperor's plan to ban low-lying icons. Leo made nice until the Christmas celebrations were over. Then he began to get tough. The Vasilefs decided to use the old divide-and-conquer strategy. 
the vast majority of the empire's ecclesiastics either folded under a little imperial pressure or just signed up happily to the new scheme. It was only a small, stubborn core who refused to get on board. So the emperor and his team began making deals. Personal visits, letters, suggestion of a promotion here or there. And, of course, an emphasis on the compromise being offered. We're not going to stop people venerating icons in their own homes. We don't really care what happens in far-off churches. But here in the capital and its environs, the icons will be removed from ground level, and God's favour will return. One by one, the coalition of iconophiles began to break apart. Realising what was happening, Nicephorus began writing letters himself, uh, desperately trying to put a stop to these plans. He even wrote to high officials in the government and the empress, begging them to intercede. Unfortunately, this got Leo's attention, and as a counter-attack, he sacked the patriarch's staff, replacing them with men loyal to him. Nicephorus became ill with the stress of it all, and eventually found the pressure unbearable. In March of 816, armed men came to his door, demanding that he meet with the emperor's iconoclast commission and answer their questions. The patriarch still refused, but the next day he left the capital. During the past few months, he told Leo to just sack him rather than ask him to turn on the icons. Now, he voluntarily went into exile to avoid being railroaded into conceding. The emperor pressed forward. He appointed a new patriarch, yet another layman, called Theodotus, a well-known older gentleman of the city. What qualified him for the role? He was a relative of Constantine V's. By marriage, but still. Once sworn in around Easter, he convened a council in the Hagia Sophia to officially change ecclesiastical policy. Constantine V's Council of 754 was remade into the Seventh Ecumenical Council, and Irene's 787 gathering was nullified. Still, Leo wanted as many people as possible to agree with the new formulation. We determine that the making of images is neither venerable nor useful, but we refrain from calling them idols, because even in evil exist different degrees. So those who loved their icons were not idolaters. They were just slightly misplacing their worship. Irene's feminine weakness was specifically blamed for this, and soon the icons in the capital's churches were moved safely out of sight. As I've mentioned before, this second iconoclasm will only last about 30 years. The consequences of Nicephorus's blunder at Plisca have not yet been fully felt. There are more disasters coming the way of Byzantium, which will undermine the connection between iconoclasm and military victory. Once the icons are restored, the Empire's historians begin pouring scorn on Leo and his successors, while also playing up the heroic resistance of the iconophiles. So, 
as we did last century, we are forced to scour the sources for the truth and hope that we aren't too misled. So, as with first iconoclasm, the vast majority of the Empire's clergy accepted the change without dissent. There seemed to be plenty of people who didn't feel strongly either way, and plenty who felt that the Emperor's argument was perfectly reasonable. No icons were to be destroyed, just moved. Even men who loved the icons and initially resisted generally made their peace with the government, for the sake of their careers. What was different second time around was that there was now a specific ideology to rally around. The opposition to first iconoclasm had been vague or confused. Some men objected to the attack on icons, but we have little evidence of organised resistance. Now, men like Theodore and Nicephorus could point to Irene's council and see themselves as defenders of a clear orthodoxy. Once the new policy was formally announced, punishment was only handed out to those who publicly resisted it. It seems entirely plausible that agreeable bishops who nodded along could go back to their provincial churches and leave their icons where they were. Leo's concern seems to have been focused on the Tachmata and the capital's intelligentsia. They needed to know that the official ideology had changed and get on board. As you would expect, Theodore was first to resist, loudly leading a protest around the studious monastery. Eventually, he and his close associates were arrested and exiled to various spots in Anatolia. But their house arrest was generally comfortable, and they were able to write to one another, constantly seeking a solution. Theodore was, of course, the most intransigent, and according to his biographer, he suffered a few beatings and other ill-treatment over the years for resisting the emperor's will, particularly after he wrote to the Pope to inform him of the government's folly. The papacy had, of course, never been interested in iconoclasm, and much to Leo's irritation, took Theodore's side. This is the end, too, for Theophanes, who joined the resistance and died in exile. It's nearly impossible to work out how successful or influential this resistance was. There was discontent in the capital, which may have contributed to Leo's downfall, but when scholars examine the surviving letters of Theodore and Nicephorus, the picture painted is one of a somewhat hopeless cause. They complain about the indifference of so much of the clergy to the new policy. For most men, it seems, ostracism was far scarier than heresy. The fact that men could go on venerating icons behind closed doors must have lured many to the path of least resistance. Men like Nicephorus and Theodore were different because they were fully invested in the maintenance of an official orthodoxy. Both had built their reputations on defending Irene's council and its formulation of church ideology. To change now would mark them as hypocrites. Not to say that their resistance was political. It's pretty clear that both men sincerely believed they were doing God's work. I often try to think about the similarities between Byzantine thought and the way we operate today. 
And I think I've said that the Roman belief that military victory is a sign of divine favour bears some similarity to the way we think of democracy today. I mean, we've all seen close elections. Sometimes the difference between candidates is a few thousand or even a few hundred votes. And yet, don't we think one guy is a winner and the other is a bit of a loser? One guy gets to be prime minister or president. They get to be famous and powerful and have books written about them. And the other guy becomes the person who failed, who doesn't get another chance, who has to leave the bright lights and go back to relative obscurity. We as individuals might know better, but as a society, it sometimes seems that from one close result, we draw unfair conclusions about the worth of individuals. All of this to say that this battle over second iconoclasm pits one set of firm beliefs against another. Nicephorus writes about this problem. He is, after all, coming up against that ingrained belief that military victory brings legitimacy, that is drawing men to the memory of Constantine V. The ex-patriarch makes a rather modern point, trying to poke holes in this illogical connection. He says, if you're going to base religious policy on military success, then why don't we abandon Christianity and go back to the beliefs of Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great? But sadly for Nicephorus, military victory still trumps all, and Leo is about to gain one against the Bulgars. There is some debate in the sources about when exactly this battle took place, some suggest it happened while Crumb was still alive, others just before the restoration of iconoclasm. Some say now, in March 817. Whenever it happened, it was a vital campaign for Leo, and one he may have wanted to delay for as long as possible. The disruption which followed Crumb's death had kept the Bulgars quiet for a year, but now they were raiding again, and the Emperor needed to answer them. Leo had been personally supervising the training of his men, as he would have uh, before he became emperor. He knew they needed careful nurturing if their morale was to be built back up. And of course, he wanted to maintain the strong rapport which had led them to elevate him. He decided to march north as quickly as possible to surprise the enemy. This meant he couldn't afford a large baggage train slowing him down. So he outfitted a squadron of ships with all the supplies he'd need, and they shadowed him up the coast. This strategy also made sense in the light of the fact that the Thracian economy was in ruins and in no position to support a large force. Naturally, he avoided the mountains, hugging the shore before setting up camp not far from the ruined walls of Mesembria. A lot was riding on this campaign, his legitimacy, his religious policy, and the welfare of the people of Thrace. Leo knew that his army needed every advantage to win, and he had a plan to make that happen. Once at Mesembria, he picked his spot carefully and had his men build a very sturdy military camp. He wasn't going to make that mistake. Taken by surprise at the sudden appearance of the emperor, the local Bulgar garrison arrived on the scene. 
they were stationed south of the mountains in the newly occupied territories which Crum and his successors were incorporating into the Khanate. Examining the strong Byzantine position, they were on their guard and sent word north for reinforcements. Leo then picked a contingent of men he trusted, left the camp at night and hid behind a nearby hill where he was fully concealed. The next day, the Bulgars saw that the imperial tent was gone and the Romans left behind acted like the emperor had abandoned them. The Bulgars felt much better now and began engaging the Byzantines in skirmishes, which they got the better of. That night, the men of the Carnate went to bed confident of further success. But that was just what Leo wanted them to think. So later that night, the Roman army crept out of their camp and launched a surprise night attack. This assault went better than expected, as the men from the steppes really had relaxed and were completely routed. Many were killed and others surrendered. Those who could get away fled north, but now Leo emerged from behind the hill and ambushed them. It was a comprehensive, if not traditionally honourable, victory. Leo led his men on a short raid into Bulgar territory, then quickly turned around and marched home. He had no desire to be caught by the main Bulgar army and squander his gains. Arriving back at Constantinople, he was able to celebrate a triumph which confirmed the worst fears of the iconophiles. The emperor had temporarily reconnected iconoclasm with military success. This victory allowed Leo to magnanimously reopen peace negotiations with Crum's son, Omatag. Fortunately for both sides, Omatag was not vengeful and gladly accepted the ceasefire. Despite the victories they'd won, the Bulgars remained a smaller and less resourceful state than Byzantium. Further conflict might imperil all that they had gained. It's a testament to just how damaging the campaign of Pliska had been to both sides that the new peace treaty was to last for 30 years, renewable at 10-year intervals. The Bulgars got the new front line they wanted. They kept all the major forts they'd taken, and the Romans would not reoccupy Mesembria. But the Romans restored order to Thrace, and all the wealthy farmland was back under their control. The city of Develtus was returned to the empire and became the designated trading centre for cross-border commerce. The clock had been set back to roughly 780 AD, with the Romans agreeing to leave the Strymon River alone for now, removing the land connection between Thrace and Thessalonica. It was the best deal either side could realistically hope for, and a mass prisoner exchange was a PR coup for Leo. Not only did recently captured Thracians get to go home, but people who'd been taken during the Battle of Pliska were reunited with their families in what were obviously emotional scenes. I should point out, though, that those who'd been resettled north of the Danube did not return. The new frontier south of the Hemus Mountains was quite vulnerable to future Byzantine aggression, so the Bulgars began building a huge earth rampart to demarcate their land. This dirt wall ran for about 80 miles, and apparently 
parts of it can still be seen today. Fresh from this success, Leo decided to bolster his military credentials further by launching an attack on the Caliphate. Again avoiding putting his men in a position to lose, he chose his targets carefully. Disorder in the lands of the Arabs was at its height. While the sons of Harun al-Rashid were at each other's throats, the outer provinces had fallen into revolt. The ex-Roman lands were particularly chaotic. So in 817, Leo sent the imperial navy to Egypt, where they stormed the port of Damietta and made off with its movable wealth. Meanwhile, the emperor led an army in person through the Armenian mountains to Kamacha, the fort they'd recently destroyed. It was rebuilt and regarrisoned, and they faced no opposition. Once again, Leo had set up a solid propaganda victory through cautious protagonism. The last three years of his reign were spent largely in the capital, dictating policy from the palace. In Thrace, he spent a lot of money to help rebuild the forts and farms destroyed by Crum, and slowly families made their way back to their homes. Diplomacy continued with the Franks and the papacy, Charlemagne's son, Louis the Pious, made some unfriendly noises about Venetia, so Leo cultivated good relations with the Doge to make sure that the Venetians wouldn't switch sides again. He also made another change to the themes, breaking off portions of the Armeniacon along the northern coast of Anatolia. These two territories were to be managed by marines and were redubbed the theme of Paphlagonia, and the ducat of Chaldea. It's not quite the time to discuss these changes in detail, but the plausible suggestion is that someone was raiding the North Black Sea coast, and Byzantine interests had been damaged. We'll find out who soon enough. It seemed like things were going pretty well for Leo. The army and the people of Thrace seemed pleased with his restorative work. His former charges out in the Anatolikon were happy to have a friend on the throne, and his marriage was fertile, producing four potential heirs. Yet there was discontent in the capital. The obvious outward sign of trouble was the continued resistance of the iconophiles. Though it doesn't seem to have been a popular movement, it showed no sign of disappearing. Theodore, in particular, continued to agitate and stir up the monastic community. A couple of martyrs are reported. No one was executed, but rough treatment led to their deaths. Theodore had to be moved several times, like John Chrysostom centuries earlier, because his jailers were too lenient. By 819, he had been moved into the Thracision theme, where a strict guard was set up to keep him silent. Historians doubt whether the icons were really a source of political discontent with Leo's rule, but perhaps the exile of prominent local men underlined the potential for the existing elite to suffer under this new regime. 
Last episode, I mentioned that Leo, the Armenian, appointed a fellow Armenian and trusted friend Manuel to be an important military commander. He married a woman of Armenian heritage. His new patriarch Theodotus, his iconoclast advisor John the Grammarian, both were of Armenian lineage. So was Olbianus, another general. And then there was his cousin Gregory and another relative, Bardas, all who gained promotion during Leo's seven years on the throne. There is, of course, nothing unusual about a new emperor promoting his family and friends, nor do I think there was a specifically anti-Armenian streak in the capital's Roman elite. But I think it's possible to see this influx as a threat to an establishment who'd not had much of a shake-up in decades. Remember that Irene empowered and promoted the civilian bureaucracy and the clergy because she could control them in a way she couldn't with the army. She was followed by Nicephorus, very much from that class of officials, and he was followed by Michael Ragave, who aimed to keep everybody happy. So it had been three decades of civilian rule, of the existing elite enjoying the perks of office and a prominent role for men from the church. Within the last seven years, change had come. A soldier, and a somewhat foreign one at that, was now in charge. He was promoting new men and a new philosophy. Iconoclasm had political consequences as well as religious ones, remember that Theodore had told Leo to leave ecclesiastical matters to the clergy. Instead, the emperor was dictating to the church, reducing the power of its bishops and abbots and bringing it more firmly under his control. Throw into this mix that seven years is not that long a period of time to establish oneself. Because Nicephorus had worked for so many years with Irene, it was possible to perceive him and Michael as extensions of her regime. But Leo was entirely new. And as we've seen time and again, legitimacy is hard to create. Leo III ruled for 24 years, but the second he was gone, his ally Artavasdus tried to kill his son and take the throne. Now, just seven years into his reign, Leo will fall victim to an attack from his friend, Michael of Amorium. Michael was also born in the 770s at or near Amorium, the headquarters of the Anatolikon. He was a little older than Leo, so would have been about 50 when the conspiracy formed around him. Unlike Leo, Michael was not born into a noble family. His father was probably decently well-off and could therefore afford to educate his son and get him a cavalry commission. But Michael wasn't a cultured man. He'd grown up on a farm and was mocked by later historians for being very knowledgeable about animals. He had a reputation for rough manners, and he had a stammer, which obviously didn't help him fit in in high society. Not that Michael cared. He was not one for that life. He was a devout Christian who didn't indulge in any obvious vices and was very loyal to his family. The rumour was that he'd grown up amongst the Athingans, a sect who shared a lot in common 
with Jewish practices. Through discipline and trustworthiness, Michael had risen through the ranks and impressed Vardan Turkus so much that he offered his daughter's hand in marriage. As I mentioned last week, Michael was very loyal to his wife and therefore looked on dimly as Leo divorced his sister-in-law when he became emperor. We don't really know, though, how the two men got on personally. They are referred to as friends, but some sources claim that Michael badmouthed the emperor so often that he had to be rebuked. As commander of the Excubitors, Michael was well known around the capital, and it seems unlikely that Leo would have tolerated his presence if he was constantly running him down. Nevertheless, it seems that Michael's name was at least mentioned in connection with a conspiracy which came to light during 820. Michael was given a warning, while Leo harshly punished the other plotters. Men were blinded, others had their hands and feet cut off and displayed in the streets. Again, no other details are given as to who these men were or what specifically they were agitating against. Leo was now alert to the danger, though, and reacted harshly when Michael was again fingered on Christmas Eve. John Hexabulius, the postal logothete and the man who'd accompanied Leo to meet Crum, discovered the plot and had Michael arrested. Leo was understandably furious and ordered that Michael be killed immediately allegedly by being flung into the furnace which heated the palace baths. But Leo's wife asked him not to mar the Christmas celebrations with such an act, and so it was decided to leave Michael to rot for a week before finishing him off. As you can imagine, this was a big mistake. When Michael was arrested, he was interrogated, but wouldn't reveal the names of any of his co-conspirators. It's possible that his captors weren't trying too hard, as they may have suspected that friends of theirs would have been implicated. Michael was left in chains in the dungeon while his allies got to work. One of them was the Papias, the custodian of the palace. He arranged for a priest to come and make a death row visit that evening. The man who came was a eunuch named Theoctistus, and he too was a supporter of Michael's. Once alone, Michael told him that if he wasn't rescued tonight, he would reveal the names of his collaborators in the morning. Word spread, and the men gathered. We don't know who they were, but they improvised a plan to murder the emperor and free Michael. Leo was due to rise early and receive a personal mass in one of the palace chapels, so in the meantime, a group of armed men were admitted by the Papias. They were disguised as monks and led to the chapel where they lay in wait. The emperor sleepily made his way through the corridors on Christmas morning and was taken completely by surprise. Whipping off their garb, the men brandished their weapons and began attacking the startled Leo. Apparently he grabbed a cross or a candelabrum to defend himself, but was quickly overwhelmed. His head and limbs were hacked off. He was about 45 years old when he died and had ruled the empire for seven years. 
As the shock began spreading around the palace, the conspirators rushed to get Michael out of jail. It was possible that if they didn't elevate him quickly that the whole coup might fall apart. Just one problem. They got the door open, but couldn't get his leg irons off. As the papyrus began frantically searching for the right key, the decision was made to just drag Michael upstairs anyway. They pulled imperial robes over his chains and hailed him as their new Vasilefs. Brutality, farce, then back to brutality. Leo's family were rounded up, and his four sons were all castrated, just as Michael Ragaves had been before them. In their haste, though, the operation was not carried out kindly, and Leo's youngest son died. In utter shock and trauma, they were loaded onto a boat along with the emperor's corpse and sent into exile. We'll never know who exactly was part of the original conspiracy, but it's worth noting that John Hexabulius eventually got the leg irons removed and remained postal logothete, and the patriarch Theodotus, apparently undisturbed by a clear violation of the Sixth Commandment, crowned Michael that afternoon. That proves little, of course. Michael had a pretty solid alibi of being in chains during the actual murder. And as one of the commanders of the Tachmata, he wasn't a shock choice to be the new emperor. Nor did the support of all those armed men make resistance an attractive option. Michael, of course, protested his innocence and assured his civil servants that they would all remain in their posts, why would he move any of them? He hadn't planned on being emperor. Uh, this, of course, encouraged them to get on board with the new regime. I am discounting the suggestion that Michael was innocent because he made no effort to punish the men who just murdered an emperor. Though the nature of the sources make it difficult to reach firm conclusions... I think we can say that Leo was a good emperor. He dealt with the crisis in the Balkans as effectively as he reasonably could. He brought peace and restored the psychological equilibrium which Roman propaganda demanded. The reality of the situation was less important for many than how they felt about it. We must always remember that though we know the Theodosian land walls are impregnable, no one living behind them was ever sure of that. To them, Crum was a nightmare, and Leo ensured that they could sleep easily again. As we shall also see, when a huge civil war follows Leo's death, his appointment had kept the military happy. During the reign of Nicephorus, the army had repeatedly revolted in the face of his demands, but under Leo, one of their own, they had quietened down. How do you think they are going to react when they learn that those scheming palace ponces have murdered their man? The issue of iconoclasm is of course an interesting one, but I think we'll have to leave serious analysis of it until the whole cycle has been completed in a couple of decades' time. In one of his letters, the ex-patriarch Nicephorus, upon hearing of the emperor's murder, wrote... 
the Roman Empire has lost a great, although impious, protector. An interesting endorsement of Leo's abilities, although there is some suspicion it may have been added later to denigrate Michael. Anyway, all of that narrative goodness will have to wait a week, because next week is the history of Byzantium's 100th episode. For this special occasion, I have secured a very special guest. Before I go, I should add that listener JP, kind listener JP, has created a very helpful index for the podcast at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. So if you want to find the post which accompanied an episode with all the images, maps, and links, then you can now click on index on the right-hand menu and find what you need quickly. Thank you so much, JP. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.